Our study of the book of Revelation brings us to the letter to the church of Thyatira that is often called the corrupt church. I don't really like these sweeping names for these churches, the compromising church, the corrupt church, the dead church. And this is a good point, this study, a good point as to why I don't like it. This does not mean that the church was full of corruption. In fact, when you look at what he writes to this church, he commends them on a broad group of things that they're doing, but then he, he focuses in on one doctrine that they are tolerant of, and he speaks against that corruption. So it's definitely that there is corruption in the church of Thyatira. It is in the church, but it is not the church. And oftentimes people will use when they, when they go to that God speaking to different times in history, they'll go to Thyatira being the Catholic church and they'll talk about it being corrupt. And there was a lot of corruption in history with Catholicism. But I also wanna remind you that they're talking about a real church. So if you're gonna say this is Thyatira, and I've heard people do that, and then say that the Catholic Church wasn't part of the church, you can't have it both ways. They're either truly part of the church that had some corruption in history that needed to be dealt with, and we know that there was, or this is not talking about them. Uh, I don't generally cover the historical aspect. I, 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 I see it to some degree, especially with the last two churches, but I think that God has something to say to us clearly from the corruption that was in this church in Thyatira. Now, let's talk, let's look at a few verses about corruption. Galatians 6, 8 says, He who sows to the flesh from the flesh will reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit from the Spirit will reap everlasting life. So if you sow to the flesh and the things of the flesh, which is listed there in Galatians, then there's going to be corruption in your life. 2 Peter 1.4 says, by which we have been given, uh, uh, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these things you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So that there would be corruption in the church is such a negative thing because we have escaped it, becoming partakers of his divine nature. 2 Corinthians 6, 16 and 17 talks about it, although not bringing up corruption by name. It says, and what agreement has the temple of God with idols? You'll see there's a connection to the church of Thyatira and the idols. For you are the temple of the living God. Why would we be involved in any kind of idols in, in mythology, Greek mythology or Roman paganism? Why would the church be involved in any of that when we ourselves are the temple of God? As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be ye separate. That's God's call. We are to be different than the world. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. The life of a Christian is to look different than the lives of those who are in the world. We, are, we have different standards. We don't get involved in the things that they get involved in. Now, the last church that we covered was uh, Pergamum, and that was considered to be the compromising church. And as we saw that it wasn't the entire church of Pergamum that had compromised, but it was a certain group of people in Pergamum who were believing the, the, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, who were believing the doctrine of Balaam, if you were here for that study. So I wanna look at the difference between the compromise of Pergamum and the corruption that was taking place inside of 
Thyatira. Compromise is a move towards something that is negative. Peter compromised when he denied the Lord. When he was walking into that, that inner courtroom of the high priest and the person at the gate said, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? And he said, I'm not. That's a compromise. He's walking with God and he compromises. There are other compromises that are in scripture. When, a, when a, an oil pump or the oil pump section in a car breaks down, that can compromise the engine. Now that, could, that compromise could cause the engine to blow up. It might just cause the engine to seize. You get everything fixed and it goes on working. But it's that, that's the compromise. Corruption is something completely different. Corruption is when there's, there's something that is something that stinks. There's something corroding. If we talk about an engine, it's an engine that has had a breach between the oil and the water and water's gotten into the engine. And now there's been rust in the engine and the rust has brought corruption. And that, that engine is beyond repair. Once corruption gets into the engine, you're gonna have to rebuild the whole thing. And hopefully the block won't be ruined beyond repair. You'll have to rebuild the whole thing though because corruption has gotten in. So it's one thing when you compromise and compromise can be forgiven. And if we identify ourselves as compromiser, compromisers, like the children of Israel, who when they were commanded to bow down to the, the idol of King Nebuchadnezzar, they refused to do it, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They refused to compromise. They wouldn't compromise. That had nothing to do with corruption. Corruption would be when the two sons of Eli uh, were, were doing all kinds of things in the temple and God killed them for it. That was corruption that was within the church. And so corruption, in a sense, is much more serious than compromise. Compromise is sin. Compromise needs to be avoided. We don't want to be men and women who compromise, but corruption. If you have corruption in an arm, you have gangrene in an arm or a leg, you got to take off that arm and leg. Otherwise, it will spread through the entire body. So in a way, the, the corruption that was taking place inside of Thyatira was worse than the compromise that was taking place in Pergamum and the compromise in Pergamum wasn't good. Now, so far we've looked at Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and now we're looking at Thyatira. Ephesus was a grand city. It was a port city. It was probably the largest city that was in the region of these seven churches. Then there was uh, uh, Ephesus and then Smyrna which was a port city as well. It was in a little bit, but it was a large grand city as well. And then there was Pergamum and that was the jewel of the area. Pergamum was the, the grandest. I don't know if it was larger than Ephesus, but it was grander. It was the destination city. It had been the capital of that region forever. It had all of these temples that were in there and you wanted to travel there, but it was vulnerable to the east to attack. And because it was so wealthy, it plant, the, the city of Pergamum planted a town about 25 miles away to the east that was a military city. They put military guards there. So 25 miles away from Pergamum, if an army starts coming to them from the east, these soldiers would be able to, to stop that march into Pergamum. So it was protected. And because of that, there was a lot of money in Thyatira. Not because Thyatira made a lot of money, but because they put a lot of money into it from Pergamum because they saw this city as essential in protecting them. Now, because there were Roman soldiers that were there, thousands of them, 
they had to be cared for. So there were all kinds of, of people that provided food for them, provided plates and, and, and armor and knives. It became a place of blue collar workers to provide for the army, but it also became a place of manufacturing. This is the smallest of the cities of all of the seven cities, but it was a manufacturing city. I thought of what city I could compare it to in the United States, and it might not be perfect because Detroit may be larger than what Thyatira was, but we could say that it was the Detroit of Asia Minor back in the days when Detroit was a, was a manufacturing city, all right? It's not anymore, but when it was, and, and may it be again. But back in those days, that's what Thyatira would have been like. That's this city. Now, a couple of things, a couple of more things about this city. It was, uh, it was the smallest of the seven churches. It was a military outpost uh, project for Pergamum. It was a blue collar city full of trade um, that, was, that was connected to all of the cities. A lot of things came through Thyatira that would be go down the trade route to all of the other six cities and other cities in the region. You remember that in the book of Acts, Lydia, who was in Philippi, who comes to Christ under Paul's ministry, is a maker of purple that comes from Thyatira. Now, it was also known for its guilds. John Walvoord, and you may have read some of John Walvoord's commentaries. They're good commentaries. Uh, he has since gone to be with the Lord. But John Walvoord said of Thyatira, Acts 16, 14, and 15 mentions Lydia of Thyatira, who was a seller of purple clothed from the city of Thyatira. Then he says this, Thyatira was famous for the manufacturing of purple dye. A, and numerous references are found in secular literature of the period of the trade guilds which manufactured cloth. So there were trade guilds in Thyatira and also of the other things that were made there. Bronze, this is the, the bronze was, was a strong metal and there's a lot of things that were made out of bronze and they had a bronze guild as well that was there. Another commentator, William Barclay says, for the inscription which has been found in the neighborhood is clear that Thyatira possessed more trade guilds than any other town of its size in Asia. That's because they were a city of manufacturing. And so there were trade guilds. A trade guild, the most common thing we have to it today would be a union, but not quite like the unions of today, more like the unions of yesterday, more like if you went against the union, you might get your leg broken, that kind of, of union. Not like the union that wants to help you be able to get a little bit more pay. If you, if you don't know, a lot of the mob worked within unions in the past and the trade guilds were like that. And so if you worked outside of a trade guild and, and it was possible you could, as, as near as I've researched for it, I couldn't find anything that said that they had to be part of the trade guild. But if you worked outside of the trade guild, you were vulnerable. You're vulnerable by the, to the trade guild. You are vulnerable if you're undercutting the prices of the trade guild, you get yourself in trouble. My late wife was born in Salt Lake City. She grew up as a Mormon. Her last name was, uh, maiden name was Christensen, which is one of the main, main Mormon names that came out from Missouri. Um, my father-in-law was a Lieutenant Colonel in the Marines and he lived in St. George, Utah. And he told me, because I asked him, because I, I, I talked to him all the time about what he thought about Mormonism. And he thought it was not true at all. And he told me why. And I could share with you sometime when we're talking about the topic of the things that he said he saw growing up in Mormonism, being a Mormon his entire life. 
And um, he said that he was a, re he was a real estate agent, re retired from the military, real estate agent in St. George. He said, if you weren't, if you're not Mormon, there's nothing written that you're not gonna make it. But if you're not Mormon, you're not gonna sell houses in St. George. That's what he told me. Now I'm going by his word. I realize it's not scientific, but I'm likening that to the trade guilds. It's like, there's nothing written, but you better be a part of the trade guilds or you're gonna be in trouble. Now the trade guilds had patron gods. And so they went to temples and they worshiped them. And there were not a lot of major temples in the Thyatira area. They could go to Pergamum, which was 25 miles away, which would be a, about a day's travel away, walking. So they could go to Pergamum, but there wasn't much there. There was, interestingly, a, a, a smaller temple that they found uh, to a woman who was involved in witchcraft at a certain point, and I couldn't find out enough information. Sometimes I run into a wall when it comes to research. You're just trying to do more research and find it out. But there was a woman there who was involved in witchcraft in the city and they did worship her and there was some kind of a temple or of a, of a group that, that worshiped her that was there in Thyatira. And I think it's important for a little bit later on. So those trade guilds are important as we begin to read on here. So let's get to the letter now. So it says, and to the angel of the church of Thyatira. An angel is Angelos, it's messenger. It's either an angel that is over that church or the pastor of the church. And the letters would be written to them as a representative. So the pastors weren't necessarily involved in the things that were happening in the church, but they as a representative needed to hear from God so they could take care of them too. But God's taking care of things in the church. He's not telling the pastor, you better you know, take care of this, but they are a representative to the church. Uh, the church is the word ecclesia, uh, is the word, um, the church is not like just a gathering. The church has authority to it, ecclesia. That's the word I was looking for. The church is the ecclesia. There was an ecclesia in Athens and they had authority over what took place in Athens. You and I are the ecclesia. We have authority here on earth. Whatever we bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever we loose on earth will be loosed in heaven, the Bible says. I don't understand what all that is, but it is authority and we have more authority than we think here on earth with what God has called us to. And... Um, to Thyatira, which we've already talked about. Then uh, it says, these things says the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like brass. You remember that every letter starts with a description and those descriptions are always connected to what is said in the letter. So he has eyes like a flame of fire. This is from the vision of Jesus in chapter one. And the eyes would be that they see everything and their eyes of fire which means they see everything in judgment. Like God judged the city of Nineveh, even though they weren't his people. Like God looks out into the world and he sees people and he will judge them. And there's no one that can hide from the judgment of God. And there's no one that can hide from the eyes of God, of, of Jesus Christ. He sees it all. He sees everything. He sees everything that this church has done. And then it says that these things says the son of God. Now in chapter one, he was referred to as the son of man. And at this point, we would be tempted to say son of man speaks of his humanity and son of God speaks of his divinity. But that's not true. Jesus is 100 or fully God man and fully God. You, you can't have 200 percent. So he can't be 100 percent man, 100 percent God, 200 percent something. So he's, he's fully man and he's fully God. And son of man, because of Daniel chapter seven, 
that says the Son of Man will come on the clouds and go to the Ancient of Days and be given a kingdom that will be given power and dominion forever. Amen. And Jesus claims this for himself. When Caiaphas, the high priest, he's arrested and Caiaphas says to him, are you the son of God? And Jesus said, it is as you say, but from here on out, you will see the son of man coming on the clouds of glory. And Caiaphas tore his robe and cried out blasphemy, not because he said he was the son of God, but because he connected himself to the son of man in Daniel chapter seven. Both of them speak of his divinity. He is the son of man who will come on the clouds of glory and be given a throne and have dominion forever and ever. And he is the son of God. And the Bible tells us in, I think it's Psalms 45 or 54. The Bible tells us that the son of God is God. God, thy God has anointed me. And thy son, uh, he says, God, I've, I've set your throne above, or your, whose, your throne is above Anyway, I didn't look up the quote itself, but the quote says it also in Hebrews 1, 8 and 9 is a quote of that particular psalm where he says, God, thy God has anointed thee. And he calls him God twice in that passage. So the son of God is called God in the Bible. So when people say he's the son of God and not God, no, there's a passage that says that he's God. And I'll look that up for you next week. All right, just so you have it who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like fine brass. Now, most commentators say that the fine brass speaks of judgment, but I don't know that it does. The altar in the temple was made of brass. Brass was a durable, heavy metal. The Bronze Age brought in a lot of, of uh, all, all kinds of advancements because of the type of metal that it is. And the serpent that was put up in the wilderness when the children of Israel had been cursed because of Balaam and they were being attacked by serpents, when they looked up at that, at that serpent, it was made out of, of, of brass. So his feet like fine brass, I think talk about atonement, talk about forgiveness, talk about what took place on the altar, that he's there, he's got eyes like fire, he sees everything, but all you need to do is come to him. There's a sacrifice that was given on the cross and Jesus represents that sacrifice. And if you ask him to forgive you, no matter what you've done, you can be forgiven. And he wants them to know, no matter what you've done, you can be forgiven. He says in verse 19, I know your works. And this is why I say that the whole church is not corrupt because listen to the works that he knows. I know your, I know your works. And then all of these have an article in front of them. In other words, it's not, I know your works, love, service, faith, patience. I, it's, I know your works, the love, the service, the faith, and the patience. All of them have the article in front of them. So God's saying this is something very distinct about them. They have agape love in this church. They love one another and they are sacrificing for each other. They serve one another. They are servants that serve one another in this church. They have faith. They are trusting and believing in God. And I think being in this environment, in this manufacturing city, they would have to have faith. And they had patience. They trusted in God and they waited. They didn't run out of patience. They continued to serve him. Like you, they gotta have patience when you run a marathon. They're in, a, in a, a marathon in their faith and they need to have patience. And as for your works, he says, which I mentioned first of all, and all of these things, the last are more than the first. Now, this is pretty incredible. It's pretty incredible statements to say to the church. And if Thyatira, 
does represent the beginning of Roman Catholicism, then all of these have to be attached to it. You can't just attach the negative parts that are said, but all of this has to be attached to it. The love, the service, the faith, the patience, that the last works are, are more than the first. So they were growing. Works are important. Works are not important for salvation. You are saved when you believe and that's it. You believe, you've decided, I want Christ. I believe he's the Messiah. I believe he died for my sins. I want my sins forgiven. I want him in my life. And you invite him in and, you, and you're serious. That's salvation. Abraham believed God and it was accredited to him righteousness. The mode of salvation hasn't changed from when Abraham believed, we believe. That's why we are the children of Abraham. Father Abraham has many sons, right? We, we are because he believed and we believe and we know it's through Christ because no one is saved without Christ. So Abraham was saved by Jesus, but it was accredited. He just didn't know. He knew of the Messiah, but he didn't know of Jesus himself. You and I know of Jesus and we believe and we're saved. Now what happens? Then we begin to want to do the things God wants us to do. We want to, we want to do the things Jesus tells us to do. Then there's works in our lives that are fruits. We are not working for our salvation. When you receive salvation, it's not meritous, meaning you, there's no merit in it. No more than when my children were young and I brought out their present to them and they came running over and grabbed it out of my arms. Did they deserve it because they took it from me? It was still a gift. And when you reach out and get the free gift from God, you didn't work for it when you received it. All you did was receive it. It's not works. So the Bible says a couple of things about works in our lives as Christians. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's the grace of God and you believed in him. So it was through faith, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Then it says this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we come to him by faith. We believe in him. There's no work in it at all. But because we have a genuine faith in Christ, the evidence of that is works. There's fruit that's in our lives of the things that we are doing. And may our works be love, service, faith, and patience. May God use those in our lives as well. Second Timothy gives us some help as well. It says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is given by the inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction in righteousness, that the man of God might be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So when we come together to study his word like we are tonight, God is equipping us for the works that he has foreordained for us to be able to walk in. Now, after saying that about them, which is good, he's got probably what is the hardest thing to hear about any of the churches in front of us. That's verse 20. Nevertheless, he says, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. Now, anybody you call Jezebel is not a good name to call anybody. And if God calls you Jezebel, there are problems. Jezebel was the wife of Ahab. The Bible says of King Ahab, who was the king of Israel, after the civil war in Israel, and he had the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel, Ahab was the king of Israel. And it's said of him that there was no one before him who was as evil as Ahab. Later on, 
Manasseh, it would be said that of him after Ahab. But up to this point, there was no one as evil as Ahab. And Ahab was an incredibly competent man, by the way. Sometimes because of the account, when we read about Jezebel and Ahab, and he seems to cower to her, remember that Elijah cowered to her as well. That when Elijah heard after, after Elijah killed the 450 prophets of Baal, which she was a priestess of Baal, and she was the, the queen in Israel, and she brought in 450 prophets of Baal and fed them there, and Elijah squared off with them, and after he, he was victorious over them, he had them killed. And then when, when Jezebel heard of it, she said, I'm gonna kill that guy. What did Elijah do? Took off. He was like, I'm gone. So Jezebel was someone to, that, that you would deal with, someone you had to deal with if Elijah would take off. And Elijah found himself under a tree saying, I wanna die. And God said, why? And he said, because only I remain. And, and God, remember God said, I have 700 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. You know, he thought too, really, he thought too much of himself. But God gave him strength there and he needed it, but he fled from Jezebel. So Ahab, the king, was a formidable man and Jezebel was a formidable woman who was able to control and manipulate her husband. So some of the early manuscripts say, nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that wife, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. And so some believe that she was the wife of the pastor, now, don't go calling pastor's wives Jezebels. I, that's too far. It's, it was a couple early manuscripts, and we give a lot of credence to early manuscripts. Some believe that she was the pastor of the church, not the wife of a pastor. And of course, for those who believe that women should not be pastors, which is us, we are soft complementarians. We're not extreme, okay? We don't believe that women don't have any place in ministry. We just believe that the teaching authority role of the pastor is for a man. And so those who believe that will come back to this verse and say, she was a pastor and look what happens when you have a woman pastor in your church. That's very, very bad um, a way to exegete scripture, okay? It's just no good. Um, we don't know who this Jezebel was. She calls herself a prophetess. Was she a woman in the church? Was she this woman in that city that was involved in witchcraft that part of the city worshiped and the church had begun to worship her? or began to compromise or allow corruption in by, by serving her. We don't know. There's, I, I, I've said this before, but as pastors, we get way too dogmatic, like we know when something is, when we don't know. And, and we ought to go, we don't know exactly what God's saying here, who Jezebel is. I think the more history you look into, the better equipped you're gonna be. But we don't exactly know who it is, but we know this. We know that he called her Jezebel. So we can connect her to the Jezebel of the Old Testament. I doubt her name was Jezebel. It was connected to the Jezebel in the Bible. So we know what kind of woman she was. Her husband Ahab wanted land. The guy wouldn't sell him the land. He was at home pouting because of it, only like a king could. And Jezebel said, I'll get that land for you. And she killed him. And it was Naboth. She killed him, took his land for her husband. As I said, she was one to not be trifled with. So we can learn some things about her, but, but she was a prophetess. We know that she's a false prophetess. She's not a true, she isn't filled with the spirit of God. Even if she's a part of this church or if it's a group that's worshiped someone else, she's a false prophet. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 15 through 18, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. God calls her Jezebel. I doubt she looked like she was something evil or wicked. 
There had to be something about her that people wanted to listen to. It says, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men not gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. And a good tree bears bad fruit. Or excuse me, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Peter talked to us about false prophets. He said, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. So I can't take a scripture, twist it to say something that helps me. It's God wrote it for a reason. It's got a reason that he wrote it. And that's our desire is to find out why it's there. It's not a matter of private interpretation. You can't say that's the way I interpret it. I've got a different interpretation than them. Therefore, I can go do this thing that's ungodly. That's what I've heard before. I don't have the same interpretation that you have. So I'm going to go ahead and do this thing that the Bible tells me not to do because I interpret it differently. You can't do that. You've got to find out what it's there for. For prophecy never came by the will of men, but the holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, what did this woman Jezebel, who, was a pro, who, um, who calls herself a prophetess, what did she teach? These are, these are things we do know. She, she, to teach and seduce my servants. So this is a doctrine, this is a teaching, this is a false teaching. And again, I'm gonna come back to what I talked about in the city of Pergamum. There's a real danger in false teachings. You think it's just a, it's just a teaching. It, there's nothing true about a false teaching being just a teaching. It brings in compromise and corruption. So she taught and she seduced the servants to commit sexual immorality. Now, maybe this was a licentiousness in the church. And by licentiousness, I mean, that's the word that means a license to sin. And there are plenty of people throughout church history and around today that believe as a Christian, you have a license to sin. They will even teach that from the pulpits. And of course, it's wrong. I shouldn't even have to say it's wrong. The Bible tells us to flee these things, not even let them be named among us. Now, it's possible that it's not talking about sexual sin. It says sexual morality. But remember that there's a comparison in the Bible between sexual immorality and idolatry. That when you begin to serve idols, you are being unfaithful to God like a husband is unfaithful to his wife when he goes to another woman. And in James, he makes this parallel. James says, you adulteress, calls the church an adulteress. Don't you know that friendship with this world is enmity with God? So there is a precedent. So could this be sexual immorality that she was teaching was okay in the church? Yes. And it wouldn't surprise us because it happens today. Churches teach it's okay today. It could be though idolatry. There's idolatry all around them. They were, their trade guilds had idolatry. They all had their patron gods. It was throughout their whole society. And so maybe they were compromising with the guilds to be able to sell their stuff. May, or more corruption than compromise. Compromise would be like them doing little things they had to do to be able to sell their stuff. Corruption would be being involved in it. And I think that this is, is corruption. Were they, were they just trying to do what they could do so they could get by? And so they were, they were involved in some of these things? And there would have been, by the way, in the guilds, there would have been sexual immorality because the worship of many of the Roman gods included sexual immorality. So in 
this could be both sexual immorality and idolatry. And then it says, and to eat things sacrificed to idols. So, so this would be not just going to the market and buying something, a piece of meat that had been sacrificed to an idol, taking it home, giving thanks to God, cooking it and eating it. That was a, that was a problem in the first century church. Every, every meat that they bought in big cities had been sacrificed to an idol, except if you raised it yourself. And so there, this was a big problem. And Paul says a couple of things about it. He says, first of all, consider the weaker brother. Paul says, an idol is nothing. He goes, when you're sacrificing to an idol, you're sacrificing to demons. So there's demonic powers behind these false gods. But the idol itself and the, the god Apollos or Hermes or Mars or whoever it was is not really a god. And so Paul says, so we know that, but not everybody has that same knowledge. And so don't eat meat sacrificed to an idol if it offends your brother. And then another place he says, don't ask. This, this is 1 Corinthians 8 and 1 Corinthians 10. If you want to read the two sections that talk about sacrificing to idols, the way they were dealing with it in Corinth and what Paul said. At one point, Paul was like, you're invited over to somebody's house. Just don't ask. Where'd you get this meat from? Was it from Zeus? Huh? You know, just don't ask. But consider the weaker brother. And that's why Paul says, if, if my eating meat is going to cause someone to sin, I will not eat meat again. That's why Paul says that. Because there's a struggle going on. This is not them buying meat that has been sacrificed to idols and, and eating at home. This is them going into the temple. This is them eating the meat sacrificed to an idol in the guilds where they're sacrificing it to them. And if you left yourself out of the social aspect of the guilds, that's where you made your connections. Then you wouldn't have the connections that you needed. So this is, this is full on, it's full on compromise. It's, it's so full of compromise, it's corruption. And this corruption will spread if it doesn't get out of the church. So in verse 21, it says, and I gave her time to repent of her sexual morality. And I love this. God gave her time to repent. God could have immediately judged her and been just in doing so. But God gives us time to repent. If you have been involved in something you shouldn't be involved in, and God has yet to come down on you about it, don't think that his silence is approval. God may be giving you time to repent. Don't use the silence as an opportunity to sin more. God says he gave this Jezebel who led them into sexual immorality and eating things sacrificed to idol time to repent of her sexual immorality. And she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed. He's going to deal with this particular woman. Why? Because you've got to deal with corruption. Like I said, if you have gangrene, there's no other option. You got to get all the flesh that is contaminated, that's, that's, that's got corruption. You got to get rid of it all. And he says, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation. God says of these people in the church that are involved in this, I will bring great tribulation into your life. And it may indeed be a reference of the great tribulation because remember, we're in the book of Revelation. And you say, well, that's so far away from here. Yeah, but there's still people in the church who would be, have corruption in their lives like this. And God is like, are you genuinely saved when you're doing these kind of things? If you're willing to be able to make money or make ends meet, to be corrupt in your relationship with God, are you really a Christian? Now, I don't know if we can judge that, but God can. God knows that we should be willing to be impoverished for Christ, 
We should be willing to, to lose everything for Christ, to die for Christ. He's, he's everything to us. He's our all in all. And we have given it all to him and we want to live for him. And we don't want to compromise in any areas and we don't want to be corrupted in any areas for him. And he says, I'm going to throw you into the great tribulation. And for them, it was some kind of great tribulation, but it may be in the last days, a real great tribulation. It says, unless they repent of their deeds. So now he says five times in these churches that they are to repent. So he is even giving this, these people who are doing these things a call to repentance. I will come and throw you into a great tribulation unless you repent. Take this as a word from God today. If you're involved in something that is corruption, get out of it and repent from it. Change your mind. Begin to follow God. Take a loss. Make a sacrifice for him. We're called to do that anyway. Then he says, I will kill her children with death. Now that sentence doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's awfully ominous. I will kill her children with death. I don't think he's talking about her kids. He's talking about the people who follow her. And the death that he's talking about is probably the second death. These people are not really saved. In Revelation 20, verse six, it says, blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. That's Jesus resurrecting the church resurrecting, the saints after the tribulation period resurrecting, that's all the first resurrection. And then it says this, over such the second death, so it calls the second part of the resurrection, not the second resurrection, but the second death. When all of those are called out of the grave who don't know Christ and they will be judged and condemned and thrown to the lake of fire. The second death, he says, has no power. Blessed are those who are part of the first resurrection because those the second death has no power. I will kill her children with death. A reference, I think, to this final judgment because when you're this corrupt, it is evidence that you do not have a relationship with Christ. And again, I don't have a right to judge you, but God has every right. And you shouldn't be concerned as to whether or not I would judge you because God is the ultimate judge. It goes on to say, and uh, those of us who are part of the first resurrection shall reign with him for a thousand years. So we reign with Christ. Verse 24, now to you I say and to the rest of Thyatira, now these are the ones who don't have this corruption in, who are not following her, as many as do not have this doctrine. Notice it's a doctrine, it's a teaching. Again, false doctrine is incredibly dangerous. Who have not known the depths of Satan. That's an interesting phrase. In Gnosticism, which was beginning in 95 AD, they, they talked about the depths of knowledge. They had a depths of knowledge and, and, and you, you couldn't explain it. And when you read any Gnostic writings, they say things like the sky is blue because the, the blue is the sky. And you go, huh? And they go, but if you, if you were right with God, you would know what that means. That's what Gnosticism did. They took these weird nonsensical statements. And then when you said, I don't know what that means. They would go, well, then you, you don't have the nosco. You don't know. That's what the Gnostics were. They talked about the deep things of Gnosticism. This may be a reference to, to them being involved with her. And it might be in the beginning of Gnosticism, the deep things of Satan. It might be just, they're calling her stuff, the deep things of Satan. It might be this occultic satanic worship that took place in the city of Thyatira that had a woman connected to it, which I still want to do more research on. As they, and then he says, as they say, the depths of Satan, as they say, I will, put, uh, I will put on you no other burden. 
So he says to the rest of the city, uh, to the church of Thyatira, just, just hold fast to what you've got. You've, you've got this going on in your midst. I'm going to take care of them. But you guys, I don't put any other burden on you. But he says in verse 25, but hold fast what, I, what you have until I come. So just maintain that relationship with me and hold fast to your faith until I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him, I will give power over a thousand nations. Or excuse me, I will give power over the nations. I just threw in a thousand because I was like excited. I thought a thousand nations. <laughs> I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. That Jesus had said of that, but now we're ruling and reigning with Christ. This is an incredible truth that is so powerful that I don't think we've even begun to comprehend. He gave Adam and Eve dominion in the garden and we have dominion with Christ. It says, and they shall dash the, to pieces like the potter's vessel. So somehow in our judgment, we've dashed to pieces like a potter's, uh, as a potter's vessel. As I also have received from my father, who has, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this is for everybody. Don't think that's not for me. This is for us. Let's hear what it has to say. And I will give him the morning star. You're going to, and Venus is the morning star. It's the first star that you see. It's the brightest star in the sky. The first star you see in the morning. And, G, and Jesus is the morning star. Revelation 22, 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. The morning star isn't Mary. In the Catholic church, they teach that the morning star is Mary. It's not. It's Jesus, clearly in Scripture. And then finally, verse 29, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I already said that, didn't I? Yeah, my notes are a mess. I won't do that again in the next one, by the way. <laughs> All right, so three things in closing. Number one, you got to get rid of corruption. You can't allow it in your life. You got to repent from it. You got to get help. You got to do what you got to do to get rid of the corruption because it will completely destroy you. Corrupt, when, when rust invades a car, you got to cut out the chunks of the car that have rust in it or it will continue to destroy the car. As I said, a motor that has been rusted from the inside is beyond help. You got to take it apart. You got to rebuild it. You got to get rid of the corruption. Number two, false doctrines must all, always be confronted and avoided. We, we will never allow a false doctrine to go unchecked because they're dangerous. We saw that in Pergamum with the two doctrines there. We saw that here with this doctrine, the doctrine of Jezebel. They have to be challenged. And that's why we want to know the truth. And when someone tells you that which you're believing is a false doctrine, listen to them enough to check it out. I'm not saying they're, they're right. There's plenty of ministries out there that want to paint everybody as a false, had that, to have a false doctrine. Billy Graham has a false doctrine and, you know, Charles Stanley has a false doctrine. Chuck Swindoll's false doctrine. There's plenty of those. So you have responsibility to check it out. But when someone says, well, something you're believing is false, then listen it at least enough to see whether or not it's true. Because our loyalty lies to God, not to anyone that we've received or heard anything from, even if we've liked them, even if we've been blessed by them. If they're teaching false doctrine, we don't want it. 
We want to, at the very least, reject their false doctrine. And if their false doctrine permeates too much of their teaching, they should be rejected altogether. Number three, God is always responsive to repentance. Even Jezebel. I've given her time to repent. And she has not. But she could have. There's no one who can't repent. You think you've gone too far. You haven't. But you could repent. And God may be giving you time now to repent. Stand with me, please, and let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for this message, this passage. What a great passage. What a heavy passage to look at. But how truly great for us to be able to study these letters that have been given and to hear what they have to say. And we pray that we are spoken to by them. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.